there's a common thread with successful individuals. They've worked hard, but they've also made hundreds, if not thousands of mistakes. What if you could learn from their mistakes without any consequences? What if you could hear from talented individuals who have achieved great success in their given field? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to shorten your learning curve, learn from the best, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. I'm your host, Mike Perry, and welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here today with Devin McConnell. Devin is the Director of Performance Science and Reconditioning with the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. Prior to working with the New Jersey Devils, he was the head of hockey performance and sports science at the University of UMass Lowell. And before UMass Lowell, he was actually a sports performance coordinator at Stanford University. Now, Devin has a ton of practical experience, and today we're going to talk shop all about strength and conditioning. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Okay, so we are back. I am here with Devin McConnell, and today we are going to discuss energy system development conditioning, whatever you want to call it. Now, um, if you've been in the sports performance world, this is not a new topic. Um, for those of you that haven't, um, you're probably wondering what the hell is energy system development. And, you know, there's, there's so much information out there. It can be tough to manage it, but it can also, it's, even more so, it can be tough to implement it. So today, Devin and I are going to talk about how uh, you can you can train athletes and how can you, you can develop each system in a way that is going to be appropriate and devastatingly effective. And, um, thanks. Thanks again, Devin, for coming on and talking about training. We're going to be doing this quite a bit and we're going to be talking a lot of shop about training. So, um, first of all, what do you think, why do you think people get so confused when it comes to creating conditioning programs? Um, uh, well, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a combination. Like, so, like it depends who the, the people are sometimes, right? Um, energy systems can be made, can be made to be very complicated from sort of a biological science, um, standpoint, o overly complicated, especially from a, a practitioner's point of view, uh, what's necessary. Like there's a difference between you know, research and in the trenches, what you're actually applying and how you do it. So some faction of the spectrum overanalyzes, over-sciences things. I think the other end of the spectrum probably is, is the opposite in that um, harder is better, more is better, uh, no sort of understanding of nuance, no understanding of um, specific demands of the task for, you know, the sport, the whatever and then how the different systems sort of interplay with each other. So it's either kind of too granular a, a, a picture and, and overanalyzing or not granular enough and, and kind of underanalyzing. Yeah, well, I think that people assume that you can just train one without training the others. And to a certain extent for the aerobic system, I think that's true. I think if you just go up for a light jog, you're not necessarily really tapping into your ATP or uh, your glycogen storage, right? But when it comes to starting to do, let's say just high, intense, high intensity exercise, you're really, really pulling from all of those energy systems and all of those fuel sources. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things people have a tough time with is, is maybe they don't understand that it truly is a continuum. 
And if you do want to prepare an athlete, um, you need to first understand the energy demands of that sport because certain sports are going to have very, very different demands. And, and there's a bunch of textbooks where they actually break down each sport and they say, how much of the sport is using the aerobic system? How much of the sport is using the, the alactic system? And how much of the sport is using the lactic system? So I think you, the first thing you have to do is you have to look at your sport and then the energy demands of that sport. And I think that's the, the, the perfect place to start because if you're talking about an Olympic weightlifter, or if you're talking about a sprinter, that's very different than someone who's running Ironman right. or, or you know, that's running marathons or whatever. So I think you do have to look at the energy demands of each sports. Wouldn't you agree? I do, but I, I also think, uh, I think that's where some of the confusion lies a lot of times because th those two examples are extreme ends of the spectrum, right? Absolutely. You've got your, your Olympic weightlifter or your you know, 100 meter sprinter is essentially an just an alactic monster yep. and the aerobic system is of very little if any uh benefit especially in the actual competition itself um and then the other end of the spectrum you know the the iron man is with the exception of the you know the first three strides as they you know sprint to the to the lake to go swim outside of that it's basically just an aerobic endurance like as pure as it can be but those are the two outliers like exactly percent in the middle like almost all other types of sports certainly team sports um are somewhere in the middle and where they kind of lie um it shifts a little bit so i think that part confuses people i also think the idea that um again you go back to that example of like the textbooks like 70 percent of this sport is aerobic and you know 20 percent is, is anaerobic and 10 percent is alactic or whatever it makes it sound like those are very distinct um, levels or very distinct sort of cutoffs. Mm -hmm. When in reality, at least the way I think about energy systems is, is and maybe backtrack, but there's, there's basically three energy systems, right? There's the aerobic, the anaerobic, and the alactic, and different terminology, but semantics. Potato, semantics potato, right? potato, potato. Right. But those three systems, they're not three light switches. Yep. There are three dimmer switches. Mm -hmm. They all are operating to some degree, essentially all of the time. It's how much of one versus the other at what time and intensity are the primary driver of energy for the body. That's a great way to put it. I love the, the dimmer switch analogy. The reason why I was really bringing up sprinters and weightlifters and um, true aerobic sports is because they are the outliers. They are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And most athletes don't need to focus primarily on one end, simply only power where you're doing, you know, a hundred meter sprint and you're waiting five to seven minutes. And at the opposite end, going out for a two hour run may not be the most beneficial way. So in a way I look to look at those two things and say, you know what? Yes, they are important to a certain extent, but primarily focusing on one or the other is probably not the best usage of your time. And, and that's yeah. the way that I look at like, it's almost like looking at these energy systems and say, what don't I need to focus on? I'm not saying that you don't need to focus on power production for a hockey player or a UFC fighter. Uh, and I'm not saying that we don't need to build the aerobic engine, but there's so many variables because how much time do we have? How many days a week, et cetera. There's so many variables that people need to discuss that, 
I, the way that I look at it is what do we eliminate at first? What do we take out of the equation so we can then dial in and focus on those modalities or those, uh, um, you know, those, those training models that are going to have the biggest bang for the buck because that is, that's where the sweet spot is. And, and then how to develop those things in a way that you know you're getting a good return on investment, but at the same time, you're not getting bogged down. Yeah, no question. I think, and back to your kind of original point, that's where, you know, what I would call profiling the athlete or profiling the sport to understand what is the primary energy system that is the driver. If it's an Olympic weightlifter, you understand, you, you, you look at what is going on and it's, it's a lactic power production. It's one explosive movement or, or, you know, very, you know, 10 seconds or less of explosive movement, um, followed by a lot of recovery. And then the other end of the spectrum, obviously just continuous work for hours and hours. So starting the starting point has to be figuring out your athlete or your sport and just in general buckets, mm-hmm. in general buckets, where does this sport fall? You know, ho- hockey is, and, and soccer, both team sports, and there's a lot of similar similarities, et cetera. But then, you know, hockey's a little bit more maybe on, on this alactic anaerobic side of the conundrum and, and soccer is maybe a little bit more on the, on the aerobic side, right? So you start to see some different buckets to place your sports or your athletes in based on that. But then again, it, it keep going down the rabbit hole. And this is what I've got for, you know, this is what hockey looks like. Um, but do I have, 52 weeks to develop like am I working in a team where I have that you know when I was in college in the college setting I basically have my athletes for a year I mean four years and it's like you can really get a deep deep dive or do you have six weeks to get somebody ready for camp which would be like again for me when when I was in the college setting where I would work with some of our alumni who would come back who were pro players I had six or eight weeks in the summer so a different scenario than I was working with the college players where I had them for a year you know, and then even different now in the NHL setting with how much time per week, per day, uh, with everything else that's going on, what do I actually have available? And so that starts to whittle down what you're actually going to work on and how you're going to do it. And, and that makes a, you make a huge, just an amazing point right now, because you have to really look at how much time you have to prepare that athlete for whatever their event is. Your event is a season my event for a fighter is a single night. Yeah. So it's very, very different. You know, my UFC guys, maybe they'll fight three times a year. Maybe they'll fight four times a year. I mean, how many, how many games a year do you have in the NHL? Uh, 82 and then playoffs. Okay. And not including so, preseason. Like if you, if you go, we, we play 82 because our team struggled this year. But if you, uh, if you're really good, including preseason, your players are playing 120 games. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a quite a different, animal absolutely um so let's let's talk about each system and we'll talk about different ways to develop each system with with the understanding that yes we we know that when we do a sprint that we're pulling from all the systems and then we can talk about the dimmer switch well let's talk about um the aerobic system and the the importance of developing the aerobic system um if you spent any amount of time diving into energy system development um the, the biggest thing, at least for a while, and, and I'll, I'll speak to it from, a, from an MMA standpoint or combat sports standpoint, everyone talks about road work. You gotta go do your road work. You gotta go do your running. You gotta go do this, you gotta do that. And 
I agree and I disagree, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that quickly. Yes, do I feel like simply going out and running? And if you can go out and run for an hour or run for an hour and a half and not get overuse injuries and and not get pissy joints and not get beat up from that, cool. Go out and do your road work. But when you're working with combat athletes, I don't know too many high-level combat athletes that can go out for an hour run or an hour and a half run and not leave that experience going, my knee hurts, my ankle hurts, my hip hurts. So the idea of road work um, in, in the, the setting of boxing or MMA or even jujitsu, um, I don't like the idea of just telling people to go out and pound the pavement three days a week because um, it's going to beat the hell out of most people. And let's be honest, man, if you're training with combat sports, um, uh, they're always banged up. You're always managing injuries and, and probably the same with you. So I found that developing the aerobic system, if we're really trying to just focus on the aerobic system and we're trying to turn the dimmer switch up on the aerobic system, I like cross training and I'll have my guys do, you know, five minutes of maybe jumping rope, five minutes on a skier, five minutes on a bike, five minutes on, even if they're doing some sideboard work, it's, it's very much, I don't want to call it circuit training because that's a very generic name, but you know, I always like to switch it up because we can prevent those overuse injuries and um, we can also just develop their gas tank in a way that's not going to beat the hell out of their body. So for a hockey player, how would you suggest going about developing their aerobic system or would you even spend a ton of time on that? Yeah. I mean, again, uh, context is king, right? How much time do I have with this athlete? If I have six weeks, if I have eight weeks, I'm not, uh, you know, leading into training camp, we're not touching it. Like it's, it's, it, it, it matters for the sport from the standpoint of the ability to recover from high intensity repeat sprint, right? We're a repeat sprint ability sport. So the aerobic system is, is, is valuable from a recovery standpoint and it's, it's hugely valuable. But if I've got six weeks, uh, no, nope, not touching it. Way more things, way more important at that point. Again, go back to the example. If I have a year and I'm, I'm periodizing out a year, we are going to spend some time with that. Um, but I think to back up just briefly to your point about, you know, the idea of road work. Um, I think one of the other things that confuses people, um, or, or gets kind of lost in translation is people think, um, they, they confuse the exercise or the modality with the adaptation, right? They think people say, uh, aerobic work. And in, in a lot of people's minds, that's road work, that's jogging, that's mm-hmm. mileage, that's long, you know, steady state, LSD long stuff, flow. Yeah. Um, but to your example, it doesn't have to be. Like what the adaptation is what you're, you're chasing. You're not, you're using an exercise as a tool. Now it might be, it might be jogging. Maybe that's the right tool for that person. For your athletes, probably not. For my athletes, probably not. But maybe for a different athlete, maybe it is. So how would I go about that in hockey if we have that amount of time and all of those things are the same? One of the things I really like to do, um, again, when I worked in the college setting, our early off-season phase, our reconditioning phase, really the first chunk of time after the, the postseason, after the playoffs, um, we would do uh, stair climbs in our arena. Um, and we, it would literally be you know, every other step on the way up, like big steps, almost lunges on the way up. And then every step walking down and not, we weren't running, we weren't weren't racing. We wanted a very smooth, steady, continuous pace to that. 
um, to develop some of those sort of uh, peripheral adaptations uh, as well as the central adaptation, meaning like literally the heart and lungs. And then the peripheral is like the, the blood and the, the capillaries and the, all of that, like actually in the muscles that are getting used. We would spend two to four weeks, depending on where we're at, as part of a bigger program, like it wasn't the only thing we were doing. Uh, and that would kind of set the stage. And then that would start to transition into some tempo running type of stuff. Um, and then that would progress into some more, you know, anaerobic and, and eventually more alactic stuff. Cause that's where we're really trying to get, but we would set the stage with like this sort of continuous, it was kind of a high intensity, continuous training. Like it was mostly concentric based big, you know, lunging up these stairs at a smooth pace. And then we would actually wear, we would use sports science, we'd wear heart rate monitors and we'd project on the, on the, the, uh, the big screen in the arena guys, heart rates, and we would actually regulate it to keep them under a certain threshold. We didn't want guys redlining at that point in time. The point was actually to stay in the specific range, um, that was sort of under, again, if you want to get sciencey with it, it was under lactate threshold. So they should never quite get to that point where, you know, their legs are just blowing up and it's that kind of lactic burn. We wanted to stay under that a little bit. <laughs> Totally agree. And the fact that you can monitor, monitor those things is awesome because, you know, if that athlete sees their heart rate on the big screen, they can know whether they need to tone it down or, you know, bump up the intensity. But there's something you said that I, I really want to talk a little bit more about. You talked about the, the loading, the concentric loading. And that is so important because eccentric loading in general is, is something that creates a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness. There's nothing wrong with eccentric loading, but from a conditioning standpoint, if you're trying to chase those adaptations, you can't do something for an hour and then have them wake up the next day completely smashed. And the idea of, uh, of concentric loading is, is, a, is a fantastic idea because you can get the adaptations that you're looking for, but these guys aren't going to wake up, smoke the next day. And that is just smart training. And I think that's a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to getting the training effect that you're looking for, but not leaving your athletes smoked. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Devin? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, again, we probably live in, we live in the same world and then we, we live in a little bit different world, right? I, uh, if I, if I apply a training stress to one of my athletes um, in the national hockey league and it creates so much soreness and distress to them that they can't go out and perform the next day. I lose my job. <laughs> like my job is not to beat people up. It's to improve their ability to play their sport. So I have to be really careful with what I apply, how I apply it, where and when I apply it and the dosage that I apply to make sure that I'm, I'm moving the needle on, on performance, whatever that might mean, you know, aerobic development as we're talking about right now. But I have to keep in consideration like all of the other variables. Again, to your point earlier of like road work and how that, you know, yes, you can go out and, and do and jog and do a, a long run and develop some like cardiovascular aerobic adaptations. But at what cost? Like at what orthopedic cost to that individual's ankles and hips and knees and, and low back and whatever, or at what muscular cost if we're applying a large eccentric overload to this athlete that's not prepared for that or it's not the right time for that. 
So there's all these other variables in the training program that have to be accounted for. Uh, because at the end of the day, like I can't, I, I have to be really smart about the application of stress to whoever I'm working with, keeping in mind that like their job, again, in my setting, their job is to go out and compete on the ice. And if I interfere with that, like my job's in jeopardy. Yeah. It's, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where, again, I think so many people get married to specific exercises to like, I love this exercise, but I'm like, yeah, but for whom? And that's something you need to understand. But, you know, looking at our sports, like we've both talked about, I'm training a lot of combat athletes. I'm not going to have them do a ton of road work because I've seen it happen. I've seen so many guys come in and like, you know, I went out and I ran five miles and now my hip hurts and uh, I'm getting some plantar fasciitis and my knees are achy. And it's just like, I have to tell these guys, dude, like you have to, you have to think a little bit more because I know like you, like the guys in the UFC, a lot of them want to, they overtrain in the sense they're like, I'm fighting. I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. And I can't tell you how many times they've gone out and done a three, four, five mile run. And then now we have to spend the next two weeks completely changing their program and going into rehab mode because they thought that that five mile run was going to make, was going to move the needle when actually it did move the needle, but just backwards. But also when it comes to developing the aerobic system for athletes, we do have to look at the sport because if you're training soccer players or lacrosse players, you can't stick them on a rower or a skier the whole time because there is specificity there and they need to condition their, their connective tissue, their ligaments, their whole entire system to get out there and run. Because if you think that you're going to prepare a high level soccer player to play 90 minutes on a rower, you're sorely mistaken because yes, maybe their heart is ready, but all of those adaptations that you get from running, changing directions, all of that load is very, very different. So you do have to look at specificity of the sport as well. Yeah, no question. And specificity, but also, again, like it goes back to how much time do you have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least for me, I want to move from general to specific, generally speaking, right? Across training paradigms, whatever we're <clears> talking about. Speed, power, conditioning, whatever. Um, I remember when I used to, when I worked with women's basketball early in my career, um, when we would finish the season, the first block of, you know, our reconditioning phase, we would, I would get them off their feet. I would have, and I actually do this with hockey a lot too, where I get them off their feet. I actually have them on a bike. So I would have our basketball players on a bike. And it was like, this isn't, you know, the coaches sometimes would be like, well, this isn't specific. This isn't going to improve their ability to run on the court. Not right now. Agreed. If we had six weeks, this is not where we'd be. Mm-hmm. But we have, you know, we have 20 weeks until the, the start of the preseason. I want to take some of the negative stress that they're applying to their bodies every single day over the course of the season. In that case, pounding their joints up and down the court. I want to develop some central adaptation, but take away that orthopedic sort of uh, dysfunction we would progress towards running and get back to running to be specific. Exactly. And hockey in hockey, we do the same thing. You know, we start, you know, certainly stair climbing is is very general for, for a hockey player. Um, It's not skating. Uh, We'd get on the bike. Sometimes at that time we, we would run or we do run in, in the early off season, but we're doing more again, not like steady state stuff. It's more tempo based. It's more sprint mechanic type work. Because for us in our program, we want to get guys sprinting and up and developing speed because that's a really key component in KPI for our athletes. But again, it's all where and when you're placing it. 
And then you had the great point earlier, people get married to a specific exercise. We want to develop the aerobic system at a certain time. That doesn't mean you have to go jog. Uh, it can, but it can also be, you know, uh, cross training, as you said, it could be uh, continuous stair climbing. It could be rowing. If that is the right tool, understand the adaptation you're trying to develop and then fit the right tool for the individual. Exactly. Look at the adaptation and then determine what's going to be the best, uh, the best exercise selection based off of their skill level, but how much time you have. Yeah. And, and I love that you made that point because, you know, I was talking about soccer players, they need to run, but they don't need to run all year round. And obviously as they get closer to season, that's when you're going to focus on that, that, you know, specialized stuff. Like, yeah, if you're, if you're six weeks out, you got to be on the pitch. And if you're six weeks out with your, with your hockey guys, you got to be on the ice. Um, so I think the timing in which you introduce exercises um, is very, very important because uh, again, you, you have to, you have to think in a way that's, you don't want to leave any bucket unfilled and you also have to determine like, how can we develop this athlete, but how, how can we also condition in, in a large word, how can, how can we condition these athletes? So when they do compete, they're not so freaking destroyed because they haven't done those specific things that are very, very important for their specific sport. And uh, you know, in the world of uh, in the world of combat sports, you know, grappling and, 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 and wrestling is awful. It is, it sucks. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I can't row. I can't bike. I can't jog. I can't skip my way to becoming a, a, a more technical or even uh, just a better grappler, but developing those qualities beforehand will allow me to um, recover faster. And uh, also when I do stress my body in a certain way, I'm going to, I'm going to have that, that sort of bank of GPP to rely on. Mm -hmm. So it's just very, very different. And I love the fact that you're talking about the timing of things. And this is like the part of, of energy systems that is so it's tough to understand because there's, there's so many different ways to do it. And then there's times to do it. And like you said, if you've got 20 weeks versus six weeks, it's very, very important. I mean, I've had guys in, in my world where they're like, Oh, I just got signed to the UFC. We have four weeks. If I'm like, yep, yeah, well, we're going to start with five minutes on the bike and then we're going to do five minutes on the rower and we, we got to keep it at one thirty, And that's like, that's not even an option. Like we're diving right into a bunch of other strategies that we can, uh, that we can use to develop those athletes. So um, yeah, the, the aerobic stuff is pretty important, but I love how you're, you're just using different things. I love stair work. I've even seen, you know, people go and just walk on an incline on a treadmill yeah. or go Absolutely. rucking or just doing something that will get the adaptation that you're, you're looking for. But uh, from an orthopedic standpoint, you're not beating the hell out of people. And, and I think that right there is probably the big takeaway from developing the aerobic system. Wouldn't you say? I totally agree. And I think there's, again, yeah, that's where as a coach, the creativity needs to come in and understand, understand your adaptation you're chasing, understand your individual, who they are today and where you're trying to go. And then, you know, again, a lot of times for me, at least the aerobic development comes at sort of the first part of that off season where we're also trying to, um, create a uh, a corrective based sort of paradigm around our training to clean things up from the things they did every single day for the last nine months 
right? So what, what tool fits in all of those buckets? That's what you really need to think about as the coach or as the, you know, as the athlete, like what is, what is the right tool with all of those different constraints, knowing how much time I have, um, knowing how much, uh, you know, stress I've been under or movement patterns I've been under and, and filling all those buckets is where the, that's the art of it. Awesome. Um, couple other questions that people were having, um, when to focus on each specific system. And, um, I know with my fighters and the guys that train jujitsu a lot, if they're constantly doing mitt work or grappling or rolling, I am never going to program straight aerobic work for them. And it's not that I don't believe in it, but if you were to look at their profile, if they were wearing a heart rate monitor and they're doing mitt work two nights a week, three nights a week, they're rolling, they're doing drilling, if they're, they're filling the aerobic bucket without, without uh, deliberately filling the aerobic bucket. Right. Yep. And, um, you know, how often do you really focus on like in season, do you do any deliberate aerobic work with your hockey guys ever? No, zero, zero. And then, I mean, you made a, a beautiful point. Um, it, again, I, I can only really speak in depth with hockey, but I can tell you hundred percent knowing from a sports science standpoint that the aerobic system, at least every team I've worked with, the aerobic system is trained adequately enough in season just based on the volume and duration of uh, low to moderate activity that occurs in practice every day uh, and in, in training, just the, the secondary effect in the aerobic system of our, our strength and conditioning work. The aerobic system is developed well enough um, for ice hockey, for the, the chunk of that percentage that is necessary uh, without doing any additional aerobic work. And, and Earlier in my career, we actually did a, a, we did a research study. I paired with our the exercise science department um, uh, and physical therapy department at UMass Lowell, and we actually did a VO2 pre and post study on the ice hockey team. And we found that we found that some guys some guys actually improved their VO2 uh, over the course of the season from from you know camp until postseason. And we didn't do a, a drop of aerobic work. Um, it was yeah. all just based on what naturally happened and just the, the tempo and the pace of work that happened. So certainly at the NHL level where we have literally minutes per week to apply whatever training stress we deem necessary. Um, no, there's zero aerobic work that we, we program again, that it basically just takes care of itself, uh, uh through the nature of, of the moderate to lower intensity, efforts that happen in practices and games. So, you know, kind of to recap aerobic, uh, specific aerobic work, you know, if you're training someone that's going to be doing, you know, hundreds of miles a week in cycling, yes, deliberate aerobic work is good. If they're going to be doing a ton of running marathons, deliberate aerobic work is good. Um, in the team sports setting, soccer, hockey, um, lacrosse, I, you know, del deliberate aerobic work is good when you, one, you have time right. and two, maybe when someone is coming from an injury and they need to be reconditioned, that's when it's good to build that base. But if you have a healthy athlete that is training all year round, spending a, spending a decent amount of time on deliberate aerobic work probably isn't the best use of your time. Would you agree? Well, a hundred percent. And that's the other, that's the other side of the equation is, even if 
even if the aerobic system has a, you know, a greater role to play in whatever sport, uh, team sport, the reality is the, the differentiator for most team sport athletes is not your, you know, is not the, 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 your VO2 max. You certainly need to have a certain level of, of general aerobic capability. But as we've talked about, like that gets developed for almost everybody just playing the sport. The, the difference maker for most team sports is speed and power. So if you just look at your training time from a standpoint of what is the thing that makes an athlete stand out the most physically in their sport and how much time do I actually have to train these, all these different qualities, then right off the bat to me, the aerobic system falls to the bottom of the pile because even if you've, even if you have a super high VO2 max in almost any team sport, if you have no speed or power, like you're not, you're losing every race to every ball or puck or whatever, like speed and power in team sports is, is the pinnacle. That's what we need to spend our time training. So if you have a fixed amount of time, you gotta, you can only spend so much time in any category. And we know that the aerobic system is not the most important piece right there that should answer the question that for nine out of 10, 99 out of a hundred athletes spending much more of their time in the alactic and aerobic uh, anaerobic systems is where that your bang for your buck is. Awesome. Love it. That actually is a perfect segue. So let's actually go to the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about uh, the alactic system. And, you know, the, the, if you're, we're talking far left, we're talking, you know, sprinters, 100 meter sprinters, we're talking Olympic lifters, we're talking power lifters, we're talking about those explosive, fast events that are, let's just say 10 seconds or less, right? And for most athletes doing an event at max effort for eight to 10 seconds, and then taking five, six, seven, eight minutes off is, is not the best use of our time, correct? Correct. But we also know that if you want to be a good fighter, a good hockey player, a good soccer player, you need to be able to create X amount of power and replicate that power over time with minimal drop-off. And that's where the sweet spot is, right? Totally agree, yeah. So how, would, how do you address that with your, with your hockey players? Like how would you focus on sprint repeatability or, um, uh, you know, in the world of, uh, Pavel talks about A&A work, you know, alactic and aerobic work. So how would you develop that? And then I'll talk about how I kind of do that with my fighters. Yeah. Uh, again, like context is everything. So how much time do you have? But let's just assume we've got, we've got lots of time, right? Um, so if I've, got, if I've got a big off season, I've got 14 weeks or 20 weeks or whatever. Um, the way that I'm going to approach that is first off, I'm going to spend a lot of my energy and time developing the alactic power, like the true, like max effort. Uh, if you think about, you know, a, a hundred meter sprinter, like, um, again, for hockey, like speed is speed is everything in today's game. So we're going to spend time getting guys faster, which means we are going to spend some time sort of doing that, like max effort, max velocity type sprint work with a fair amount of full recovery time. Maybe not what, you know, a, a true hundred meter sprinter would do, 
but we're going to really spend some time because if, if, uh, if we talk about repeat sprint ability, okay, it's going to be governed by sprint ability. So if your sprint ability is low, if you're slow, you can go back and forth all day and, and recover from these, these efforts all day, but your speed sucks. Yeah. So if your speed sucks, we're going to have to get faster or more powerful or like whatever, enter your, your power based metric. But once we've done that, then we start to implement more of the repeat sprint ability or the, the, the repeatability of that, of that factor. So we're going to go from kind of early in the off season program to really being, again, we've passed the reconditioning phase. We're into the training. We're really going to be focused on maximal intensity type of efforts with large amounts of recovery so we can truly have good outputs. And we're basically going to taper over the course of the year, or the, the off season to like where we get to camp where now it's not about maximizing power output, but it is about maximizing uh, repeatability. So it's going to be sort of a, an inverse relationship between essentially a lactic power, explosive stuff and uh, lactic capacity, which is trying to hold on to your explosive stuff in the presence of fatigue. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think you make a great point. And again, we talk about time. If you have the time, then then awesome. But if you don't have the time, it's not going to be the most uh, efficient or effective way to work with an athlete. But <clears throat> let me ask you this. If you were to give someone a template, let's say you've got a hockey player or even a soccer player, right? We'll just, I know they're, they're different sports, but um, what would you use from a metric standpoint? Would you, and how long would you focus on things? Would you do 10 yard sprints? Would you do 15 yard sprints? Would you do 20? Would you like, what would you do? And what would your true work to rest time be? What would you focus on? What is your work to rest template on this stuff? Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll, again, we'll simplify and we'll just talk about the actual like sprinting part of a program, which is going to be, at least in my system is going to be, you know, on any given day, uh, it's going to be one fifth of what we do over the course of that day. Right. But, but you can apply this in, in all of these buckets. So if we're talking about sprint stuff, if we're early in the off season and we're focused on that, like actually getting faster, um, we're probably for most team sports, I'm going to be doing probably no more than 20 yard work probably. And really uh, the bulk of the work I'm going to do is, is 10 yards because most team sports are more uh, dependent on acceleration than max velocity. It's not to say max velocity doesn't have, um, isn't important. And, and certainly you can, if you raise max velocity, acceleration also improves. So there's gray area in this conversation, but mm -hmm. realistically, most of what I'm going to spend time on is, is 10 to 20 yards. Most we want acceleration. And most of my guys like hockey players, are terrible runners. So they're going to be at max velocity at 10 to 20 yards. Anyways, they're not mm -hmm. Olympic sprinters that hold it to 60 early on. If we're trying to get faster, it's a one to eight, one to 10 ratio. In reality though, if it's a three second sprint, it's really 30 to 60 seconds between sprints. It's not that big a deal. It's basically a, a 15 yard sprint. And then you walk back and you wait till your heart rate is low and you're not, you know, breathing hard and you go again. That's early on. But again, as we transition, we want to take 
speed and develop capacity out of that, that distance of sprinting is going to stay the same, but the, the rest time is going to decrease. So it's going to go from a one to 10 to a one to five type mm -hmm. of idea. That's how I would progress those a lactic power eventually to kind of lactic capacity type ideas. Yeah. And also too, if you think about how long each sprint is, you're talking three seconds. That's not that long. And if you look at someone that's, you know, an elite sprinter running the hundred, they're sub 10 seconds, right? And the difference between an all out three second sprint and an all out um, 10 second sprint is very, very different because I mean, you take someone that's only been doing these shorter intervals, like, you know, three seconds, two second sprints, and then you open them up for 10. Now their gait's changing, their mechanics are changing, and then you could be jacking up hip, hip flexors, you could be jacking up hamstrings because the mechanics are very, very different as well. So you have to understand that with something like sprinting, your acceleration posture and your acceleration phase, just simply looking at what their global mechanics look like is very, very different than a top end speed phase. And then you have to determine, well, is, is it really worth having these guys doing 100 meter sprint repeats because then you could jack them up right a hundred percent this goes this is the road work idea early on like in theory this makes sense in practice this beats most people up like in theory max velocity work for ice hockey players at a certain time of the year on land makes perfect sense in reality most hockey players are horrific runners and sprinters and taking them any, any distance beyond acceleration, again, beyond 10, maybe 20 yards, me mechanics change. They're not good enough to do that well, <laughs> and they break down. And then, again, so what do I do? I take a guy that makes $8 million in the NHL, and I, I you know, tear his hamstring because it was really important to do max velocity work. Like, Devin doesn't have a job anymore, <laughs> you know? So it's, it, the, all of those pieces go into it. Exactly. It's funny you said that your, your hockey players aren't good sprinters. Same thing with my fighters. Um, at first, I'll be honest, I used to get, out, get guys doing sprint repeats or doing band sprints, and I don't use them anymore. And it's not that I don't like them. It's just simply my return on investment is not there. But I want to go back to what you were just talking about, the difference between power and capacity, and then your template. So you were basically saying if you are truly trying to develop power, you're going to do, let's say it's a three second event. Let's just call it three seconds. It could be sprinting. It could be a bike, whatever. And then your recovery is going to be almost complete recovery, which is anywhere from eight to 10 times their work rate. Correct? Yes. And yeah. then if you want to develop capacity, you're not changing the length of their sprint. You're just changing the length of their recovery time to develop that capacity. Correct? Yes. So they're, awesome. they're, the, you're, you're increasing the density of the work that they're performing, which puts more stress on the lactic or the anaerobic system. And then if sort of programmed correctly, more stress on the aerobic system mm -hmm. eventually. So that's where you get into your alactic aerobic work working together. But I like to always use the example of, um, I go back to basketball, um, and skill development because it's the same concept. So basketball coaches love to uh, have their players like run suicides and get absolutely gassed and, and fatigued and tired and then go shoot free throws. And the thought process is, well, at the end of the game, 
uh, you're going to be really tired. You're going to be really gassed. Somebody's going to foul you. You're going to be, you're going to need to be able to hit a, hit a bucket, hit a free throw in this state. So that's what we're going to practice on the outset. That makes perfect sense. But <laughs> what if your free throw shooting percentage when you're completely fatigue free is like 20%, which is horrific, right? Like I could probably shoot 20% and I cannot throw, I can't shoot a basket. Um, I can't even dribble. If you, if your ceiling's 20%, this is the repeat sprint thing we talked about. Yeah. If your ceiling's 20%, like, great, like hit 20% while you're fatigued all day. It's still 20%. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. The better option is to work on free throw shooting at the beginning of practice when you're not fatigued and get that percentage up to whatever, 60%. Then you do your, your while fatigued and maybe, maybe you're not getting to 60% because you're tired, but you're at 50%. That's still 30% better than you were. Like speed, power, and capacity is the same idea. If your power or your speed is low, who cares what your capacity is? Yeah. You got to get here. Once you're here, then yes, then it's about repeating that ability, repeating that power output. Yeah. So basically you're saying if your performance when you're fresh is subpar, don't even attempt to try to train that when you're tired because it's, it's your ROI is just not there. Yeah. I, I see it all the time in, um, in grappling and, I, and I've seen this a lot and people are like, well, oh, you have to know what it's like. You know, you have to test yourself when you're tired. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that. But if you don't have the skill set to begin with, trying to develop a skill set when you're exhausted is you're just, you're just maybe all you can do is delay how long you're going to get your ass kicked. Yeah. But that's about it. And you cannot learn a new skill or hone a new skill when you're tired. But there is a point where you can learn to maintain that higher skill level when fatigue comes in, but that's a separate conversation, right? Yeah, Learning exactly. how to maintain posture and mechanics when you're tired is a learned skill that I'll be honest, takes a long time to, to develop. hundred percent. And, and, but I think you can even do that again. I, I think in terms of like practice planning um, and, and training is, it's the same, it's the same template um, practice planning on the ice. Like, if we want to, like, I would always talk to our coaches about this. Like we're going to work on power play today. Let's, let's do power play work right at the beginning of practice. Like let's warm up and then go into power play work. Uh, the ice is clean and fresh. So the puck doesn't bounce around. Everybody's nobody's fatigued. So everybody's really crisp and sharp. Let's get better at the system. We're trying to run cognitively guys aren't fatigued. We're into it. We're able to learn. We're able to think quickly. We're able to execute high level skill. Perfect. Now run practice. And at the end of practice, do it again. Now you're trying to hold on to that skill you worked on in a fatigued state. So you're able to do both. And really the way that we train off the ice in a lot of ways is similar in that we'll do speed and power development work early in our training session. And we'll do conditioning work, whatever, that means at that stage of the year at the end. So we're, we're training the, the energy systems at the end when they're not going to negatively impact the speed and power work that is very neurologically uh, dependent early on. And it can't, be in, it can't be improved in the presence of fatigue. You cannot get faster when you're tired. You can't improve a, a skill 
while you're tired. You can maintain what you have, but you can't improve it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that what you just said hits home because I look at um, my sport of, of um, you know, jujitsu and, and, you know, from a, from a conditioning standpoint, when I, when I go and roll with a lot of people, I'm pretty conditioned. But when I go against my coaches or people that are high level and their skill is so good, their ability to maintain that skill level with minimal effort is the sweet spot. And I think that is something that just takes years and, and time. And, and you said this before, we had this in our last conversation. There's guys that they're not the most conditioned in the world. They're not the fastest or not the strongest, but they are the best because, you know, their skill level is so high and they can get things done and they don't have to exert the same amount of effort as the other guys. And that's where I think, you know, that comes, there's so many things that come into it, you know, genetics, practice, um, vision. I mean, there's just so many scenarios. So it's, um, it's, it's one of those things. It's that's, that's the tough part to really, you can't bank on that, right? Because if you are just so technical that you can outsmart and outplay people, you don't have to be as strong and as conditioned, which guys strength and conditioning coaches, which is what we do. Sorry to say it, but you're going to see guys that, you know, their performance numbers suck but they could be the best players on the ice. And then we have to look at our jobs and go, ah, oh, shit. Like <laughs> I thought that this is how it's supposed to be, but yeah. it doesn't always work that way. No, I, I find myself doing that a lot these days. Uh, again, because I'm, I'm fortunate to work in a scenario where, uh, you know, I work with, you know, basically the, if you're, if you're playing in the national hockey league, you're one of the best 700 players in the entire, on the planet. They're all really good. Even the guys that aren't that good are like, insanely good um so you know yeah where do we really fit in that picture is, is always a, a conversation worth having but again it regardless of skill level regardless of those pieces like our ability to uh improve these specific capacities at the right time you know if you take a an incredibly talented player uh with poor you know energy system development and you improve their energy system development, that, that only helps. It certainly doesn't hurt that individual. Uh, you know, for it, it might not be as important as the player that's down here where they're more reliant on the physical output, but at the end of the day, like it still counts and it still matters. Yeah. And, and uh, it's funny. I'll tell you a quick story about when I first started training fighters, I would, you know, I, I thought that my job was the most important thing in the world because these guys would come train with me and they would all win. So I'm like, yeah, like what we're doing, we're the shit. Like I'm a badass strength coach. And then I realized, you know, yeah, it's important, but I just happened to start with a bunch of really talented individuals. Yeah. And I thought that their success was a, like, I thought that my job was a big part of their success. And, and I'm not saying that I didn't help them, but then I realized like, like, they're going to do well, whether or not they follow the program I write for them. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that at first when I was younger, it was just, you know, I thought my job was more important and not that it's not important, but then I realized, man, like they're, <coughs> they're studs. They're just studs to begin with. And, um, they probably would have won this fight and that fight without me. Yeah. And that is something that I look at now after doing it going, yeah, well, I'm glad I helped and I'm glad to be part of the team. But, um, 
you know, maybe, maybe my role wasn't that important. Not that it, you know, it's not important, but um, I think I probably gave myself more credit than I actually deserved. But um, anyways, I want to go back to our sort of uh, our elactic system. And you had mentioned moving from that, um, that power template to the capacity template. Now, at the same time, if we want to develop that continuum from a lactic to lactic, there's a way that we can do that. And, you know, what I've done is I've, I've gradually increased their duration of work, but also when you increase their duration of work at first, you're still developing power, right? So if you're looking at lactic power, again, you may do a 15 second event or a 12 second event, and then you may have to rest eight to 10 times of that. But then over time, again, we will decrease, uh, we will decrease the, um, the amount of rest so we can start to build capacity. But we've talked about this before. I think people skip steps because they read a book and they're like, a lactic, eight seconds or under. Glycolytic, 30 to 40 seconds. But we have to slowly ratchet our way up so we can gradually climb. You're not gonna, if you take someone that's only been doing five, six, seven, eight second sprints and then ask them to do a 30 second max effort sprint because the books tell you to do glycolytic work, you're sorely mistaken. And I've made that mistake too, where I didn't, I didn't slowly ramp them up where I didn't say, you know, we're going to do a five second sprint, then a seven, then an eight, then a nine, then a 10, then 11, then a 12, and then gradually work their way up. And I've made the mistakes of having big gaps of their effort, which completely just destroyed them. And I remember guys doing it where I'm like, Oh, you're just not ready. You're not conditioned enough. And then looking back at it, I'm like, that was just really dumb training. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you hit on a good point. There's, there's two ways that you can um, increase the density, right? You can, like we talked about, you can maintain the same duration of your output and slowly decrease the duration of your recovery, or you can maintain the duration of your recovery and increase the duration of your, your output. And I think that gets back to some of the, like, what does your sport need? right? If you are a hundred meter sprinter, it is 10 seconds or less. If you're elite, like if there were, there's not, but if there were a need to increase density, keep this thing the same. Cause that's the competitive exercise. That's very defined and decrease the density of your, your recovery. Well, you know, in our sports, right? Uh, absolute power output matters, but then repeatability matters. And to your point, like, you know, in hockey, a hockey shift is 40, 45 seconds long. So while in that 45 seconds, there's a bunch of two and three and four second bursts of activity. When you put all of that together, it's like two hard steps and then coast and then three hard steps and then battle a guy in the corner. Like it ends up being this bigger bulk of time. So those two things to some degree, and again, it, it depends on your sport, depends on your individual, but they need to happen in conjunction. So the, eventually you get to a point where the recovery durations, maybe you're decreasing those, but now you're also trying to increase the, 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 uh, the output durations. Uh, and that's how we would end up a lot of times going in, in the hockey off season is sort of ending at this stage of like, kind of even like kind of one-to-one, like 30 on 30 off ish type of stuff, not for a long duration because that's another sort of conversation, but, you can really pretty fully develop the, the lactic system in, in a few weeks of like 
very intense, but specific work. So we might only spend like three weeks kind of doing that two to three weeks. Um, but that was kind of the template because it's like, well, we need to be able to go for 30 to 45 seconds. We need to literally get to that time frame. We also want to push that capacity so they can recover and recover and recover and they build this engine. Um, and so it's really about manipulating both ends of that kind of both ends of that spectrum. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to understand that when you are doing these, these bouts of conditioning, whether it's a lactic or lactic work, it really comes down to if you, you know, you've got to develop the power. And what I mean by that is you need to acclimate the athlete to doing whatever the effort is, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and then make sure that they're recovered to do it again. And you get a similar, a similar output or a similar performance, but diving right into true capacity work right away is going to smash people because if you're asking someone to go 30 seconds max effort and you right away, you, you program a capacity template with them. If you go 30 on even 30 off or 30 on a minute off one rep, they're gonzo. They're destroyed. So I think that we need to look at power and capacity. And, and obviously we want to program power first um, from a standpoint, because we want that performance and we want that repeatable performance, but at the same time um, we just can't destroy them. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no question. I mean, um, the, the, the best ability for an athlete is availability, right? Yeah. And so if you, if you smash somebody and they can't compete in the next competition, you know, for us, the two days later, we're playing a game or if they can't come back and train appropriately in two or three days, because you've just absolutely demolished them. Or even within that training session, they're over on the garbage can yakking because you made them throw up. Like they're not able to, to progressively move the needle forward, which is really what training is all about. Like we're trying to find, we're trying to find the sweet spot to push, you know, homeostasis above uh, baseline just enough that they're able to adapt and get better, but not enough that they take three steps back. Like that's really what our job is all about is trying to find that, that Goldilocks sweet spot. Yeah. And so you mentioned something a few seconds ago and we, we were talking about this in our conversation months ago um, at my gym, but you mentioned battling and uh, we, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, you've talked about how it, how it, this, this idea of battling and um, this, these short bouts of two steps here, five steps here, 10 seconds here um, that will make up a 45 second shift. Um, I feel like that is something that people don't understand is, is it's very taxing, but when you dose it the right way, it's, it's an absolute game changer. And I remember training my soccer players. Um, and this is when I was first working with a bunch of MLS guys and I didn't know what, to be honest, I didn't know much about energy system development. I just knew what made everybody really tired. <laughs> so we would have these guys, we'd put them in a you know, four cone grid and I would say, you know, I'd, I'd count one, two, three, and they would have to sprint and touch cones and blah, blah, blah. And then after that, they would sprint 40 yards and rest. And we do some repeats of that. And, you know, what I realized through that is, man, like the 30, 40 yard sprint for these guys wasn't the hard part. It was that 15, 20, 30 seconds of cutting, accelerating, decelerating, moving laterally. It's all of these multi-directional movements um, that really, that's the stuff that fried people. And then they had to go and do like a longer stride. Um, do you feel like, like how important is developing that specific skill of, 
let's call it battling or let's call it transitions work or close quarter multi-directional work. Let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, it's, I mean, again, it's specificity. Um, what is metabolically harder for a, a, you know, a team sport athlete running a 400 meter sprint, you know, uh, on a track running, running one lap or running a 400 meter, uh, shuttle at, you know, 50 yards where they're stopping and starting whatever that is, you know, eight times or whatever. Uh, the, the shuttle is much harder because you have this huge eccentric deceleration with a reacceleration. Like that is way more metabolically and muscular, muscularly difficult than the just straight ahead speed. Um, the same idea, like you talk about battling, like, you know, we call them in hockey battle drills where you're, you're in front of the net, you know, more or less, you know, trying to beat the shit out of your teammate, <laughs> you know, or in the corner, same thing. There's just physical, it's like grappling and there's just yeah. punch and there's a cross check and like, but that, you know, essentially that kind of hand to hand combat and that jostling and that eccentric and, you know, change the direct, like that is way more, I mean, and again, literally we, we, we monitor our players with heart rate monitors, like those types of drills and that type of action is a, a much higher stimulus to the central nerve or to the uh, cardiovascular system than skating laps, yeah. you know, or skating sprints. Now that might be more uh, intensive to the, to the neurological system, right? So again, we have to think about where we're putting what and what we're trying to develop. But from a, a specificity standpoint, um, those are the types of things that we need to be including in our sort of late stage off season into the preseason and the types of things at certain times in the season we're trying to work on because you can skate laps or you can skate lines up and down, but that is a totally different thing than going in the corner and battling for 15 seconds with the guy and then coming out of that and, and either defending if he has the puck or getting the puck and trying to make a play. Like that's a totally different thing. It's exhausting. And uh, I remember in, um, you know, playing soccer growing up and um, playing in college, um, I used to go and run, I could run three miles in like 18 minutes and I could run tempo runs and I'm like, I'm fit. And then I'd go to play and I, I would be in these scenarios where I was battling and I'm like, why am I so tired? I did the work. I didn't do the work. I thought I was training and I was, I was headed in the right direction, but I did the wrong stuff. And I'm um, looking back at it now. Um, you know, I wish I, I wish I would have done something differently, but you know, in the world of, of combat sports and in, in, in wrestling, I never wrestled. Um, but wrestling is hard. Uh, I can't say that I've ever done a true wrestling practice, but I've, I've been in scrambles and I've gotten my ass kicked by several people. And um, it is some of the most um, tiring, embarrassing uh, scenarios where you think you're fit, you think you're tough, and then you go with someone that was a wrestler and they just murder you and you're just like, holy crap, like that was awful. Talk about puke inducing. Um, that's brutal, but that, that scrambling, that battling is stuff. Um, it's important, but I think the other thing is the devil is in the dose and you can't do that all the time because you will get injured. You will get hurt. And, and, uh, there's a big reward with that style of training, but man, the devil's in the dose on it. Well, it's specificity, right? Yeah. It's why, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong, let's, you know, pretend doping and drugs, you know, didn't happen, but for the, the sake of the story, um, the greatest, you know, endurance bike athlete in history. And he, you know, more or less like barely finished the first marathon he ran. 
because of specificity, because he wasn't a runner. Like it was a different thing. Um, at the same time, to your point, like you can't, you can't do that all of the time because there's a, there's a, there's two sides of the coin. There's a negative side to that specificity coin and doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over <clears throat> while it might be most specific to the demands of the sport or the scenario. Uh, it also means that there's a, there's a huge overuse, uh, you know, piece of that puzzle. Um, and so that's where we go back to early in the conversation. We talk about general to specific, like those types of things would be programmed late in the off season as we're trying to get very specific to kind of hand off to, you know, preseason camp on the ice. That's not the stuff that we're doing early in the off season to develop this foundation of this pyramid. This is the, the, the specific stuff is the peak of the pyramid and, and doing what, you know, basically making training more or less look like the sport uh, happens, should happen at the very tail end of the bigger picture. The, the early stages are more about the general adaptations. Um, and again, like we've talked about all night, like getting out of those specific patterns for a host of reasons, but going towards specificity as you get there, no different than, working on, you know, peak max velocity or peak speed development early and then capacity late because capacity is what the sport looks like. Work on the, the, the detail or, you know, the, the detail of speed development early, but then be able to repeat that later on. Cause that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to matter in the sport. Yeah. And, 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 you know, specificity is so important because you can be, you can be a weight room hero. You can have great numbers. You can sprint, you can win your conditioning test, but if you're not doing sports specific work, it doesn't matter. You're just, you're just a numbers guy. Sure. You've got a big squat, a big deadlift, maybe a big hand clean and you know, your 10 and 20 yard sprints are great. And you know, maybe you can run two miles really fast, but you get on the ice and all of a sudden it's just uh, it, none of that stuff matters because maybe you've never spent any time on the actual specific part of the sport. Um, and in certain, in certain cases, for some people, the specific, the specific part of the sport is so much harder than being in the weight room that they just don't want to do it. And I, and I've seen that several times, but, um, I want to answer, I want to talk about a, a few questions here, um, that people had, um, how to program each energy system and how often for each, um, we've talked about that a little bit and, and it really does depend. I will say this, if you are in general pop, I don't think you need to worry about energy system development. I think that um, you're, you're, you're definitely going down a rabbit hole that you don't need to go through. Um, but like Devin and I had talked about, for, for each person, you develop specific qualities based off of how much time you have and how close you are to someone's event. And we, we definitely went into detail. Anything you want to add on that, Devin? Well, no, I just, I mean, I think, I think for general pop, I would say that it's not my world. So, so maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm mistaken, but I think people fall into two camps a little bit, either very aerobic endurance sort of based or very, very lactic capacity more is better till you puke based. And I think if we want to talk about sweet spots, it's kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, these people, the aerobic folks, probably would be, would be benefited by doing more kind of anaerobic, more higher intensity with some recovery stuff. And these folks that are all high intensity with no recovery, like maybe a little less intensity and a little more recovery, like more of a middle ground area for that. 
Yeah, essentially, you got to look at what they're currently doing and program the opposite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Mike Boyle talks about this a lot about Gen Pop. Most people lose their power as they get older. Most people lose their foot speed as they get older. So yes, those are those are good qualities to program. But then again, you have to be smart because you know someone's going to be like, well, I've read that older people lose power, so I'm going to take my 65 year old athlete that hasn't sprinted in 20 years and ask them to go sprint, and then they tear their Achilles, right? Like those are the things we have to be aware of. But again. I like the point that you made. You have to look at what they're currently doing and you're probably going to program or at least fill buckets that aren't being filled. Because if you've got that person that wakes up every day and runs five miles, they don't need more aerobic work. They probably need to learn how to, you know, squat, deadlift, split squat, lunge, or even just do some power work. So, um, let's see, uh, someone was asking about, uh, you know, in, in a physical therapy world, uh, how can they understand, uh, to minimize loss of capacity early in rehab um, and how can they bring things back up at appropriate times. Um, honestly, I don't think in the world of physical therapy, you should be worrying too, too much about energy system development. I'm not that it's not important, but you know, it, insurance regulates how many visits you have and how, how often you can do things. So I think that is a conversation where we think about GPP, right? I think you have to look at if someone's in a rehab setting, you need to introduce them to exercises that are going to build their overall uh, general physical preparedness, but it's going to not smash them from an orthopedic standpoint. So that is where doing, you know, again, that circuit training idea, maybe it's walking for five minutes, maybe then you push a sled for a little bit and then you hop on the bike or you do a little bit of battling ropes or whatever. I think they need that general physical preparedness. And I think you can probably program a variety of things as long as it's not going to injure them. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, my, my role uh, currently has a, you know, it's, it's obviously within a team, but I'm uh, very integrated. I'm a, a big piece of my puzzle is return to play. So it's literally, you know, if, it, if, if this was the private setting, I'm the, I'm the middle ground between like the PT clinical setting and like back to life. Um, so I'm kind of that middle person. And so for us, um, when we have an athlete that's injured and they are in the return to play continuum with me, um, it's really about trying to, um, depending on the length of time that I'm going to end up having them, if it's a longer term injury, uh, then it's starting to look at, you know, what are some of the limitations? Like, can we spend some of this time actually improving some of these qualities, uh, that, you know, just with the day to day, they wouldn't be able to work on. So it, it, again, like we said all night, like it depends a lot on how much time you have. Um, but if you're in a, you know, a PT setting, and you have some time to be able to work on that. I think for most people, again, general pop, that kind of middle ground general prep stuff is going to be really, really valuable um, as far as discharge and getting them actually functioning better um, outside of, uh, you know, outside of PT and rehab. Yeah. You're going to choose the modality that's going to give you the adaptation, the adaptation, but um, in a way that's not going to potentially have any sort of contraindications or negative side effects, because again, um, you just have to be smart. You have to know the, the individual's history and this and that. And that's why I think, um, in the private setting, it's so important to understand, you know, people's background and ask a ton of questions because so many people leave out scenarios or leave things out or don't talk about injuries, et cetera. So I want to talk about a, a few other things here. Um, so I'm going to ask, when should most energy system work happen, preseason, in-season, both? Um, and we talked about that. I, I think that if someone does have a true event that they're training for, then you just build up to that event. Um, 
and then you just have to look at, you know, how often is this athlete doing their specific sport? So I think we definitely did cover that. Um, and uh, someone else, you know, what energy system should we prioritize? Again, I think it really depends on their sport and how much time that you have. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, again, it's, I know the, the answer, it depends is kind of generic, but it really does. And, um, I think we could, we could talk all day about this stuff from a specificity standpoint, but, um, you know, I will say this when you're looking at competition, the rules change when you're competing versus just trying to get somewhat fit for everyday life. And I think that's where you need to understand programming. And I think gen pop needs a variety of movements and movement variability to keep them healthy. Um, and if you look at, uh, an athlete that's competing, that's when you have to look at more specificity and go from there. Um, Someone asked how to assess energy systems and what to do with that data. Oh, that, that is one that, um, that is, is really tough to, to answer. Um, there are ways to look at VO2 max. There are ways to look at um, sprint repeatability. And uh, I think, again, you have to develop a, we well, have to look at what test is going to be appropriate with that individual. If I'm training a soccer player, maybe a Cooper test is a good idea maybe a 2K on a rower isn't a good idea. So um, there are several different ways to, to even measure each, each system. But uh, again, I mean, when it comes to a, sp a sports science standpoint, that's, I mean, you could probably, you could <laughs> probably talk about this for days. Um, how, let me ask you this quickly, because we're running out of time here, but how, in, in a nutshell, how do you assess the alactic system and how do you assess the um, lactic system? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I think in my context, specificity is really important um, because there's, there's uh, plenty of research now um, that is, shows, you know, a lot of what we've always done in hockey from an off-ice testing standpoint actually doesn't correlate that great to on-ice. So, and again, it's the Lance Armstrong thing, like no kidding, like the closer we can be to the sport, the more it's going to matter. So what, what do we do? Um, we do uh, 30 meter sprints on the ice for a, and we get a force velocity uh, data out of that. Um, so that, but that's basically, that's our alactic power. How fast are you? Okay. Um, we get, and we do uh, basically a modified beep test on the ice, which for people that may or not, may not be familiar, it's, it's sort of a, um, a gradually increasing in speed shuttle. So they go back and forth down the ice and it gets faster and faster and faster. And finally they fall off and they can't do it. Um, and so that's sort of a middle ground between the anaerobic and the aerobic system, a little bit more aerobic. Um, we don't specifically test like a, uh, anaerobic capacity, but we utilize the heart rate monitors and we get data every day on our athletes as far as, what their sort of thresholds are. So we actually sort of secondarily get that information. So that's how we go about looking at it. But again, I think it, what matters is the context of your, your sport or your client. So being as close to what they're trying to do and then finding, you know, um, finding a test or, or utilizing coming up with a test that tests that capacity, tests that system. So if you need a, an alactic test, um, something that's 10 seconds or less, 
pick whatever that looks like. If you're a rower, row. Um, if you're a runner, sprint. Um, you want an anaerobic test, probably something between 60 seconds and two minutes, kind of from an output standpoint. And then, you know, probably five minutes or longer. Again, if you're a really aerobic athlete, certainly much longer, um, but trying to be specific and then within those three buckets. And it also needs to be repeatable and not jack people up. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. you know, for, for, for me, and I'll, I'll kind of close on this, uh, when we're training the fighters, most of our conditioning test is done on a bike. And it's simply because I, they're not going to get injured on that bike, right? Um, I'll look at their max power. You know, I'll just say, all right, you're going to do a rolling start and you're going to show me your max power and how much power you can produce your peak power in 10 seconds. Um, that's a simple way to just get metrics, to get numbers. Is it perfect? No, but they're not going to hurt themselves um, doing a max effort bike sprint. And same thing. You could do the same thing with 60 seconds. You can say, um, get them on a bike and go hard for 60 seconds and how much ground can they cover, right? You know, how, how much mileage or distance can they cover? That's a, a decent alactic I mean, sorry, decent lactic test. And then same thing, you can put them on a bike and say, all right, go five miles and let's see what you got. Simple, simple ways to do it on a bike. Obviously specificity is, is, is important, but um, those are just some general ways to do it. But again, you have to look at the specificity. I mean, it's gonna be really hard for me to like get one of my fighters and be like, let's see how many punches you can throw in 10 seconds. And look, let's look at, you know, how hard you're punching. There's just, there's too many things to, to um, to measure there. And, uh, it's just tough to, it's tough to do. Plus you need the, you need the equipment to do that. Right. I mean, you, you've got some pretty cool equipment where you can look at, you know, you've got force plates, you've got all this other stuff. Most gyms don't have that. So I think that's another piece of the puzzle. It's like, and, and you wrote this, uh, definitely plug your, your book right now because you give people some really simple ways to look at sports science with minimal equipment. So Devin, why don't you close us with, um, you know, your, uh, your book, and where they can get that book so people can, uh, can, can purchase that. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, so the book is called Intent. Um, it's uh, uh, Intent, a Practical Application for uh, Sports Science. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You get it on Barnes & Noble. I would urge people to look into their local bookstore if you're interested uh, oh, to try to get it that way, especially in these times. But yeah, I mean, the, the premise of the book was basically taking a lot of these concepts we're talking about from a sports science standpoint and saying, okay, like, um, we, you know, um, force and power output is a really important thing to measure. Force plates are sort of the gold standard to be able to measure some of those things in, in jumping and some other different types of movements. Um, this is what you would look at with force plates, but if you can't afford force plates, uh, you can get jump mats for a couple hundred bucks. This is what you can use and how you can implement jump mats. If you can't use jump mats, uh, this is how you use, you know, chalk on the wall and how you create a monitoring system. Um, and the same thing to your point of, of, you know, bikes, there's, you know, you could buy a $3,000 watt bike and get data, but if you can't afford that, you could get an assault bike and you can get some pretty good data. And if you can't do that, you could do, you know, a simple spin bike, as long as it gives you some type of information. And so there's layers, basically a gold, silver, and bronze layer for all these different sort of uh, areas that you can and measure and monitor and, and, and track people and, and ways to do that. Devin, thank you so much for your time, buddy. And uh, I truly appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks, brother. Great to see you. Hey, everyone. It's your host, Mike. I just wanted to take a few moments to say thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate your support. If you did enjoy the podcast, I'm going to ask you for a couple favors. One, please share the podcast with your family, friends, and loved ones. Two, 
please give us a positive review in the App Store. Thanks so much, be safe, and God bless.